India begins the year with an outreach in the neighborhood, with visits to Sri Lanka, Maldives and Bhutan and even an invitation to Pakistan. What lies ahead in 2023 for South Asia? Hello and welcome to a new season of Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather, season 3. This is episode 93. Now, this is going to be a particularly interesting year for India as the president of the G20, the first time the global grouping is actually going to come to South Asia. It is significant that the year began with New Delhi's newly powered push in the neighborhood. So let's just take a look at what's happened in the first few weeks of the year. External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar traveled to Maldives in January. His visit was really largely about India's assistance to the Maldives for a number of infrastructure projects. In fact, there are in total about 46 projects, infrastructure and otherwise across Maldivian atolls, as they're called, and islands, of which about half, 23, have now been completed. This is apart from the other loans and grants that have been given. Now, of the projects, the biggest is the Greater Male Connectivity Project. But Mr. Jai Shankar also visited other projects in the north this time, including the Hanimadu International Airport, its redevelopment project's stone-laying ceremony. He inaugurated a community centre in Fokahaidu and announced a new sports complex in a place called Gaaf Dalu Gaddu as well. In total, India has already committed well over $2 billion just during the Soli government's tenure, so since 2018. And I'll tell you why that's significant. But secondly, Mr. Jai Shankar then traveled to Sri Lanka. India has provided a total package of nearly 4 billion, 3.9 billion to be precise, including credit lines, currency swaps, loan repayment relaxations, allowing the island, which is in a severe economic crisis, it's negotiating its bailout from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to get through the worst. It gave the island some breathing space. In addition, just ahead of the visit, India also sent off a letter to the IMF committing to restructure Sri Lanka's debt. India, Japan, China are amongst the biggest creditors of Sri Lanka, so this was an important thing for Colombo. External Affairs Minister also met with President Ranil Vikramasinghe while he was in Colombo and invited him to come to India. That visit is expected in March this year. In fact, I spoke to the Sri Lankan High Commissioner, Melinda Moragoda, about what the outcomes of that visit were. And you can see that entire interview at the Hindu's website, the link given over here. Now, meanwhile, Foreign Secretary Vinay Quatra visited Bhutan and held talks with the fourth king. He called on Prime Minister Lote Shiring, discussions on development, cooperation between India and Bhutan during the 12th five-year plan. In fact, Indian assistance on digital infrastructure and educational infrastructure in particular was highlighted in that meeting. Of course, hydropower, a big part of the relationship. The visit also came just days after Bhutan had announced progress in its boundary talks with China. So clearly, while this was not mentioned in the official releases, it was a big part of Mr. Quatra's agenda while he was visiting. Now, the foreign secretary is also expected to visit Nepal in the next few days to invite the new prime minister, Pushpakamal Dehal, also called Prachand, to visit Delhi, and he may be in Delhi as early as February or perhaps March as well. And then there was this invitation to Pakistan, as New Delhi sent a letter to Pakistan's foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto, to invite him to attend the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization's foreign minister's meeting in May in Goa. If Mr. Bhutto does come, he'll be the first foreign minister to visit from Islamabad 
since July 2011. So we're talking 12 years. The SCO summit where Mr. Shabazz Sharif will be invited will be held tentatively in June. So that's another big outreach. Although it is routine, the fact is that if either of these uh, Pakistani leaders do come to Delhi, it'll be a first in more than a decade. And then Prime Minister Modi himself addressed an online Voices of Global South summit where all India's neighbors except Pakistan and Afghanistan, of course, were present. Notably, Myanmar was included in the neighborhood despite the, the breakdown in recognition for the government since the military junta took over. During the leadership session, it was important, Bangladesh Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina herself took part along with Prime Minister Modi. The conference was really seen as a feeder conference for ideas ahead of the G20 summit later this year and really was a way of bringing 125 countries that are seen as part of the global south into the conversation, especially the neighborhood. So what is driving this concerted push at this time? And I've listed for you all the countries that the outreach is going to. And there could be many reasons. But here's what we think are right at the top. The first, India's high profile event this year, big ticket item is really the G20. You can see cities across the country being getting ready for it. We're also seeing a number of meetings that are already under, underway. And all these meetings really require regional stability. So no nasty surprises come out in relations with any of the neighbors. And that's one of the big reasons for the push. The other big reason is that elections are due in many of these countries, in Bangladesh, in January 24, in Bhutan later this year, in the Maldives later this year, also in Pakistan. Bangladesh, remember Sheikh Hasina is seeking an unprecedented fourth term. She's going to see a pushback. She's seen as very pro-India. In Maldives, the opposition PPM under former President Yamin is leading an India out campaign. So New Delhi is keen to shore up its ties with the incumbents in power, but also with the people of the neighborhood, just in case there are new governments elected there. And then you have the big problem that came from COVID, but brought with it an opportunity. COVID clearly hampered China's outreach in the subcontinent in terms of economic support, in terms of tourists coming out, in terms of inviting students back in. China's lockdown that has really clearly been the hardest, longest, uh, toughest lockdown around the world has ensured that China has been cut out of many of the conversations in the neighborhood when it came to economic support to Sri Lanka, for example. China was actually behind India. So India has an opportunity here to reclaim its place in the region at this point, also to push back the China challenge, even as India faces the fourth year of the line of actual control standoff with Chinese soldiers. Then there is the outcome of the Russia-Ukraine war, which will complete a year soon, Western sanctions as well on Russia, they've all had a big impact on Indian foreign policy. We've been talking about this at Worldview, and we are definitely seeing a reversion to concepts of strategic autonomy, to non-alignment or multi-alignment as it's called, also to more and more becoming a voice for the global south, as that conference proved, engaging groups like the G77, which is the group of developing countries of about 125 countries. So we're seeing the Modi government doing much more of that. And it would really seem that New Delhi is also looking to go back to a bit of regionalism, just as the rest of the world is, ensuring strong ties with all the countries in the region that it possibly can. A fifth reason, while external events may not actually hamper India's domestic politics, the fact is that India's domestic politics 
uh, particularly the government's policy towards minorities, does impact its image in neighboring countries, um, especially, of course, those like Bangladesh, Maldives, and Pakistan, which are Muslim-majority nations. Uh, and as a result, the Modi government has obviously in the last few months found it has to go the extra mile to reassure friends in neighboring capitals of India's continued commitment to pluralism. Now, this is something that is not necessarily spoken about all the time as a part of India's foreign policy, but it's there at the back of many minds. But there are also, now, you know, when we're talking about all these issues which are in the present, there are also more important reasons that the government must continue to build on this regional foray. And that is that all of India's future problems really require an all-of-region solution. They require solutions in the entire South Asian region. So even if you don't believe in the SARC grouping, South Asia as a unit has to deal with many problems. What are those problems? For example, air pollution. Nine out of ten South Asian cities are in the, in the top ten list of polluted cities. Water pollution has the same thing. The fact is that the solutions to air pollution come from an all-of-region, what is called airshed management. Water pollution, rivers that go from one country in South Asia to another, you will need both countries or three countries to work together on them. Climate change is another big part of where you need a regional solution. Energy security, getting the best deal for energy, but also the need for a renewable energy grid that will bring together all the renewable energy sources in South Asia and then distribute them. So, for example, if India is going to bring renewable energy from Nepal and from Bhutan, those big hydropower potential there, and bring it onto an Indian grid, dispersing it to Bangladesh and to Sri Lanka, the fact is, unless there is a whole-of-region approach, you are not actually going to get the demand needed for mega-infrastructural uh, financing. In fact, this is an opportunity that Pakistan continues to miss out on. Given its huge power crisis, they had that uh, power crisis last week where much of the country's cities had to shut down. And yet it does not want to be part of India's South Asian solution of a renewable energy grid. There's also health security, the control of pandemics, scarcity of resources. Again, all of these need that regional push. So if these are the problems of the future, uh, then it would seem not logical really to not look at a more South Asia approach. In fact, I've written about the illogical rejection of the idea of South Asia. There's an article in the Hindu, uh, which you might find interesting. Eventually, India's position at the high table of the world is an impossibility. If the region is in crisis, if the subcontinent is in crisis, or if its neighbors are inimical, uh, inimical because that makes India vulnerable. India's neighborhood, or South Asia, uh, as it's known, is a geographical, cultural, and historic reality. It's not something you can wish away. And it is only by accepting the importance of working with the neighborhood that India can truly fulfill its potential on that global stage. Time for some book recommendations, and I have promised to try and make most of my recommendations uh, really about all the new books that are coming out, because I know you're, many of you have had a time in the last few months to catch up and come up to date with some of the older book recommendations. This is brand new. I'm very proud to speak about it. Coping with China-India Rivalry, South Asian Dilemmas. I've written a chapter in this book on Bhutan. I do hope you are able to get it and read it. There's another new book out called Politics of Hate, Religious Majoritarianism in South Asia. Very important conversations here. Essays edited by Faranaz Ispahani. 
that really look at the problems of radicalization, majoritarianism, right-wing extremism, as well as religious extremism. Uh, these are, this is a real important book for the times. Then there are two new papers. I touched on one of them briefly. You can certainly buy bound reports of them or download them as PDFs. Uh, one is called Striking Asymmetries, Nuclear Transitions in Southern Asia by Ashley Tellis. He's of the Carnegie Endowment. It's certainly a very important book to looking at how South Asia has changed by the two big nuclear powers in it, India and Pakistan, and of course, outside of it, China. The other book I spoke about is Striving for Clean Air. Lots of great advice in there. Air Pollution and Public Health in South Asia. This is a book by the World Bank team that works specifically on One South Asia. A book a little bit from the past called Monsoon by Robert D. Kaplan, who is the author of The Revenge of Geography and Asia's Cauldron. These are very important regional um, geography books. Another one called The Power of Geography. I think I've spoken about it before. Ten Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. The sequel, this is, to Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. Then there's another book called Modern South Asia. It's in its fourth edition now. Uh, culture, uh, History, Culture and Political uh, Economy. This is by Shagata Bose, as well as Aisha Jalal, renowned historians, uh, and really a very interesting read. A book coming out soon called Subcontinental Drift, Domestic Politics and India's Foreign Policy. This is by an academic based in Singapore, Rajesh Basrur. It'll be out later this year. And it looks at how domestic constraints hamper India's foreign policy and its potential as a superpower. So very on point with some of the things we've discussed today. Climate change in South Asia, if you haven't had enough of this issue um, after this, it's called Politics, Policies and the SARC. It's an older uh, work by Banya Telang Majau. He's produced by uh, Routledge and uh, published by Routledge and certainly a very important read. Finally, uh, there's this book. You might find it interesting. It's memoirs that touches a little bit upon India and Pakistan post the Balakot. Uh, strikes and what happened. Uh, this is by former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called Never Give an Inch Fighting for the America I Love. Now, obviously, he's pushing for his presidential uh, run possibly next year. It contains new and very contested bits. Already there's been a denial from New Delhi on the contents of that book, but it may be interesting. So far, only available on Kindle. So we hope to keep you uh, updated on lots more reading ahead this year on Worldview. From the team, please do join us again right in. Thanks for watching.